Welcome to Beyond Borders, the world's first talk show made especially for English learners and global citizens. With me, your host, Ethan. In every episode of this show, it is my job to guide you outside of the classroom and into the real world with life-changing insights from some of the world's best teachers, language learners, innovators, and leaders, all here to help you unleash your highest potential in your English and your life. So if you are ready to join our movement of millions and together create a world beyond borders, then let's get started with the show. Ollie Richards, IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com, and Langpreneur.com is a polyglot online teacher, author, and entrepreneur. After buying a one-way ticket to Paris at the age of 19, there was no turning back on the language learning journey for him. Since then, Ollie has learned more than eight languages fluently and has developed his own method, story learning, to help thousands of people speak a foreign language. He is originally from the UK, but Ollie is a true global citizen. Over the last 15 years, he has lived, worked, or traveled to Japan, Portugal, France, Brazil, Egypt, Qatar, and so many other countries. Through his I Will Teach You a Language YouTube channel, podcast, and publishing company, he helps people around the world to improve their lives, relationships, and potential by learning new languages. In fact, early in my own language learning days, some seven or eight years ago, Ollie was a big hero and inspiration of mine. And on the Langpreneur podcast, he invites the biggest names of the language industry to share the ins and outs of turning their passion for languages into a profitable online business. Ollie and I had a delightful talk on a variety of topics that are going to really help you take your English to the next level, or maybe even motivate you to learn a new language. He explained to me how a near-death experience led him to the idea for his unique approach to language teaching. We also discussed how you should effectively spend your time learning, and he shared his approach for learning eight plus languages. We talked about the biggest misconceptions English learners have and how to take responsibility for your own language learning journey. He shares how his storytelling method works and how it could revolutionize your ability to learn and speak a language naturally. You might be surprised here. We also got into motivation and why it is okay to be rusty in a language. And finally, we chatted a bit about global citizenship. And if you stick around until the end, you can quiz yourself along with Ollie about some language related trivia. All of that coming right up in episode five of the Beyond Borders talk show. All right, Ollie, welcome to the show. It's a honor to be here, man. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's been way too long uh, since we last collaborated. Actually, we just finished recording a podcast on your podcast. But before that, we were saying it's been something like six or seven years, right? So, something like that. Yeah, we've been talking for uh, for a long time. We've both kind of like, we've, we've both been teaching languages for a long time. And um, we've kind of been doing it like together, but not <laughs> you know, at the same time. Um, but yeah, it's always great to talk. I could not agree more. So just to start off, I think there's quite an interesting story that we had seen. So I was wondering if you could tell the audience about your near-death experience. Yeah. So this was when I almost died. It was about 15 years ago. And um, I tell this story to to explain how I learned really good Spanish. Because before this happened, I was learning Spanish, but I, I found it very difficult. And this experience happened 
And it really changed how I learned Spanish. So I was traveling in Argentina, um, and this was, uh, I think, in 2003. And I was traveling up to the north of the country, up on the border with Bolivia. And it was this beautiful little village up in the mountains called Irusha. And it was very, very high up. And I was uh, with some friends and we had a, we'd enjoyed like a really nice steak and a bottle of red wine. And, and that night I went to bed and I woke up at about three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't breathe, which was a very scary experience. I don't know if you've ever had this happen very high up in the mountains, but uh, it's, it's not, it's not nice. So I kind of jumped out of bed and um, didn't know what to do. So I kind of ran outside onto the balcony. And I remember standing on this big balcony, looking out over this huge valley with a full moon shining light down across the whole valley. It was a very surreal experience. And I couldn't breathe. The breath wasn't coming back. And I think about two or three minutes passed, and I still couldn't breathe. And I was, you know, trying to breathe as, as heavily as I could. And I, I thought then, you know, this is it. I'm going to die on top of this mountain. Luckily, the breath came back. And, and I was okay in the end, uh, but I was very scared from what happened. So I sat down outside and I was too scared to go back to bed. And so all I had with me to pass the time, because we didn't have iPhones back then, all I had with me was a Spanish book that I bought from a local bookshop. And it was, it was far too difficult for me. I remember it was Crónica de una Muerte Anunciada by García Márquez. It was too difficult for me, but I didn't have anything else to do. So I started reading this book in Spanish, like plodding through the pages one by one. Didn't really understand most of it, but some bits I could understand. But I was too scared to go back to bed. So I kept on reading. And I must have been reading this book for about three hours or so before I eventually fell asleep. Anyway, Next day, I was walking through the village, happy to be alive, and I realized that there were all these words that kept popping into my head, these Spanish words like el obispo, which is not a word that you use, that you learn normally in textbooks, it means the, the bishop, el obispo. And there were all these words like this popping into my head. I thought, well, that's strange, because normally when I try to l memorize new words, it's very difficult. I can't remember them <laughs> for very long. But these words were, were lodged in my head. And I realized, well, it's because I was reading that book last night. And so I carried on reading and I finished the book. It was difficult for me, but it was just enough to understand. And then two or three weeks later, I went back to Buenos Aires, where I was staying to see my friends. And I realized suddenly I could speak Spanish so much more fluently. I was speaking in longer sentences. I had more vocabulary. I could understand what people were saying to me. And I realized it was all because I'd started to read this book in Spanish. And so all of the kind of study that I'd done before that suddenly came together and created a complete view of the, of the language uh, in my mind. And so that's how I sort of discovered for myself the power of learning with stories. And that's even stuck with you. I mean, saying like El Obispo, that it's like a very obscure word. 20 years later, I still remember it. Yeah, <laughs> that's very crazy. And I definitely want to come back to this. And, and obviously, it's like your whole expertise in the storytelling method. So we'll talk a lot more about that. But I believe like even with, through your journeys, maybe there's been other kind of similar near-death experiences. I saw, for example, that you were in Tokyo when there was the big earthquake and tsunami there, right? Yeah. So this was 2011, I think. And it was in the big earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And I was on the, I was in a big tower block and I was on the 10th floor of this tower block when there's a, when the earthquake struck. And yeah, I mean, basically it started off very, very like a, just a, a tremor, very light. And you get these all the time in Japan. 
And um, but then after a couple of minutes, it was just full on earthquake, and the building was swaying, literally swaying like this from side to side. And I was just like Sounds looking terrifying. out the window, thinking, "What's going on?" Like seeing everybody out on the street, like down on the on the ground. Um, and it went on for about four or five minutes. And it doesn't sound like a long time, but when you're in the middle of an earthquake and you you think that the building is about to collapse, I can assure you, it's a very very long time. I did, it, that didn't help me learn Japanese, unfortunately. It was just a, a near-death experience. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I have lived in very few places that have that, but I lived in, in Chile and, and I experienced a small earthquake there. It was like my first one ever. And I remember I was in a call sort of like this and just being like, starting to notice the things on my desk moving a little bit. And then it started to move like more. And I was like, like, am I, am I supposed to like stop this call and like crawl under the desk or like what? <laughs> I think you are. Yeah. Luckily it didn't last very long, but <laughs> it's just, that can be a very, it's a bizarre and obviously a very terrifying experience. So I can imagine like if you're in a high building, yeah. it's just. <laughs> well, this was 9.2, I think on the Richter scale. My so God. it was heavy. That was a very big one. Yeah. <laughs> so you're fortunate to have made it out alive. Yeah. Right? I think the amazing, well, the amazing thing about that was that in Tokyo, I think not one person died despite this really strong earthquake in a, in a, in a, in a city with millions of people, not one person died because the Japanese construction is so good and they, and they, and they know how to make earthquake proof, uh, buildings. So yeah, it's a testament to Japanese construction. Yeah. That's something yeah, very fascinating that they're able to actually do that. The same in San Francisco, they kind of have the buildings on those rollers. So uh, maybe we can take it in a little bit lighter direction. I mean, we're talking about starting off talking about near-death experiences, but I know uh, I've seen different videos of you singing in different <laughs> languages and in Portuguese and Cantonese, and I'm sure there are others. Uh, so I was just wondering, what role would you say that music plays in learning languages for you? Yeah, so so you're right. On my YouTube channel, I have recorded videos of me singing songs in, um, in, in I think, probably only in Portuguese and Cantonese. I have learned songs in other languages too. But yeah, so I am a musician. I, I, I played music all my life. I learned classical piano and then jazz. I did a degree in, in jazz piano. After that, I played music all of my life. And so I've always enjoyed learning learning songs in other languages. I think because, I mean, firstly, I just love the music. Uh, not all music, but there's certain music in different languages I really love. And so it's kind of an opportunity to use to, to marry up two things that I'm familiar with, the language and the music. But when I learned Brazilian Portuguese, for example, I learned completely through music. So I remember when I was first learning, I, would, um, I was sitting in my, in my room in North London with my guitar. I don't really play guitar. I play a little bit, but not so much. And I was looking for bossa nova chords for certain songs, famous Brazilian songs. And I would, I would like find these songs on the internet with the, with the, with the chord progression. And I'd be going to be sitting there like trying to play the song and sing the lyrics in, in Portuguese. Oh, que coisa mais linda. And, um, and, and I just learned like dozens of songs in Portuguese, even though I didn't know what the words meant, but I just learned these songs. So from those songs, I was, I started to actually learn, figure out the language bit by bit. So yeah, I mean, music's a huge part of my life. Although I don't play that much music anymore, uh, but I've I've always always looked for ways to marry marry up um, different things that I'm interested in. Do you have any strategies that you use for learning with music, or is it just kind of more that you use it for your relaxation in the language? I use it purely to learn to learn songs. I mean, the thing is, because because I have a musical background, it's very easy for me to actually learn to play the music and to sing the music. Like, that's really quite easy. Um, so what I what I do specifically is just learn songs. So I learn to play and perform 
in, entire songs. Not, I mean, more for the music really than for the for the language, because songs are quite short generally. You know, you don't going to learn a lot of language from a song, and so the real benefit that you have with songs is actually to learn something to a really high level. So you want to, um, you know, learn entire, learn the phrases, focus on your pronunciation, learn to sing it with some, uh, you know, with lots of expression. And um, so I, I see songs as a way to really work on your articulation, your intonation, your accent and things like that. And I learn it, I learned songs just by over and over again, hundreds of repetitions. That's the only way. <laughs> I've always found that as well. I mean, I'm by no means a professional musician like you are, but <laughs> I definitely have found that using music and, and even just like singing in the shower, like, you know, listening to these songs over and over again, so they're in my head. And then kind of just when I'm by myself, singing them out and stuff that, that does really, it's almost like going to the gym for your uh, muscles of articulation, because you can really try to figure out how to correctly sing these different sounds that maybe don't exist in your own language, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or even just focusing in on on sounds, which are just slightly different. Uh, like, I mean, for example, in Portuguese, you have the own sound, corazón. And um, I mean, yeah, okay, we don't have that sound in English. But when, the thing is, when you're singing a song, you've got to get it right. You can't sing uh, corazao. It doesn't work. You've got to, you've got to sing, you've got to say, uh, and so it just gives you the opportunity to focus. Okay. Where is the sound? Is it in my mouth? Is it in my throat? Is it down? Is it lower down? Like, where's my tongue? It gives you the opportunity to focus on, um, on, on these sounds in a really kind of specific way that, you know, when you're speaking with somebody, you can kind of gloss over it a little bit, but when you're singing it, you're very exposed. So you have to get it right. Yeah. Especially if you're singing it out loud or you're in front of a mic or anything, I think that's definitely important. Uh, so kind of continuing, I, I guess, just with language learning tips, something interesting I saw that I want to ask you about is what is the Pareto principle? And because uh, I've heard about this applied to business and things like yeah. that, but how do you apply it to learning a language? Yeah, this is quite, I find this quite commonly misunderstood, actually, with language learning. So the, the Pareto principle is also known as the 80-20 rule. And it's the idea that a very small number of things um, account for most of the effect. So for example, um, if you plant seeds in the garden, if you plant 100 seeds in the garden, 20 of those seeds will grow into plants. If you look at the the wealth in the world, a very small number of people own almost all of the, of the wealth in, in the world. So wherever you look in the world, you have this phenomenon where a small number of things do most of the work. And so People try to apply these principles to lots of different things. It's very common in business. So, for example, in business, you'll, you'll say, okay, let's say we have to do some advertising and there are five places where we could advertise. We could advertise on Facebook, Twitter, the local library. I, I don't know. What's going to happen is only one of those places you can advertise is going to have almost all of the, of the impact. And so in language learning, there's a few different ways to apply this. And one way to apply this is to think, I'm going to learn the most common words in the language. So for example, in English, it's commonly said that the most, that there are 100 words which account for 50% of everything that's said. For example, words like there, he, go, on. Um, these words are so common that, that you can learn like 50% of all language by just learning those 100 words. So a lot of people say, well, start, if you learn a new language, start by learning those words first. I used to do that, but actually I don't think that's a great thing to do anymore because the thing is these common words, you're going to learn them anyway if you just speak the language or read books or, or whatever. So I don't see any need to actually focus on learning those things at, at first. The way that I like to apply the 80-20 rule 
in language learning is to think, okay, you can do all of these things. You can read books, you can watch TV, you can speak, you can learn grammar. But what is the one thing that's going to get you most of your results and then just spend all of your time doing that? So in my case, I don't really believe that learning lists of words is very helpful. I don't believe that studying grammar is very helpful. What I believe is that input should be the thing that you spend most of your time on because input is where you're going to actually learn the language and have the opportunity to learn words, learn phrases, learn grammar. And so that can be um, watching TV series like in your approach. It can be reading uh, books of stories like in my approach. But what I like to do when I'm learning a new language is to spend 80% of my time on input and then just 20% of my time on other things. That's that's a really great idea. Uh, I think that a lot of learners tend to maybe just focus on, you know, what they think are these things that people tell them they should do and stuff, but it's kind of, you always need to be curious and experimenting and finding what's going to work the best for you. And I love that focus on input too, because I mean, adults don't work, uh, adults don't learn exactly like children do, but I think there are some things that we can borrow from the way that babies learn. Like, and that's like one example is that they learn by listening for a very long time before they speak. And I think it's important to speak from the very beginning too, but uh, a lot of your focus should go into that listening aspect of it and maybe not on just memorizing vocabulary lists, which you're just, you're going to be bored to tears, right? Yeah. Well, I think we always, there's always going to be a balance. We need a little bit of this and a little bit of that. that. That's inevitable. But I think because of our education system, the way that we're taught in schools, the balance is like this. Um, in favor of traditional study and 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 tests. So for, for people listening, basically, I just I raised my my hand up uh, just to show that most of what we do is learning grammar, um, memorizing vocabulary, taking tests, and things like that. And like that stuff isn't wrong; that can be useful, but it shouldn't be eighty percent of what we do. It should be maybe twenty percent of what we do. And so I think in 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 language learning in general. The balance is wrong. We have the balance wrong and we need to reverse that balance so we can spend a little bit of time learning grammar or whatever, but then most of our time should be actually with input and immersion, which is how um, we learn our mother tongue. You know, if you think about how you learned English, you know, it was with, it was by hearing English spoken by your family all around you, by, you know, bedtime stories and things like that. We learn our languages by being immersed in it. And so that's the thing that we should borrow from, from native speakers. Definitely. Uh, kind of, since you mentioned just schools and, and some of these things that schools are putting too much of the focus on the traditional learning, on memorizing vocabulary, on grammar, uh, memorizing grammar rules rather. So are there other big misconceptions that you find there are in the English language teaching industry or the language teaching industry? I think there are a lot of misconceptions about language learning. And I think most of it comes from what we remember from school. A lot of adults who are learning a new language, that something will happen in their life and they will realize, okay, I need to learn English now because I need to get a visa to go and live in Canada, or I need it for to work in this American company or, or, or whatever it may be. And so, you know, let's imagine that you you realize when you're 30 years old, damn, I need to learn English now. What do you do? What's the first thing that you do? Well, the only thing you can do is do what you know. And what you know is what you remember from school. So you go right back to school, which means textbook, teacher, uh, tests, lists. We can only do what we know. And so I think most of these misconceptions come from that experience. I need a teacher. Well, actually, no, you don't. I need to study grammar. No, you don't. I need to memorize lots of words. No, you don't. Uh, these are, this is all stuff that we remember from school. Uh, 
But it's actually, if you look at how very successful language learners learn languages, they usually do very different things. And so that's what I try to do with my my work. I, I, I see the way that I try to really help people and add value is by just reframing what it means to learn a language and how how we should go about it on a very basic level. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you've learned something like nine languages independently, like you said, maybe going against the traditional school learning. Yeah, so I I, I, I speak eight languages. I've learned more than that, but not to to very different levels. Um, And I've learned all of these as as an adult. So um, I started learning languages when I was 19, when I learned French, that was my first language. And so since then I've learned uh, um, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Japanese, Cantonese, Arabic, and then a little bit of Thai, a little bit of German, a little bit of Korean. Um, So I've got a lot of experience in different languages over many years. That's absolutely incredible. And why do you tend to recommend more this autonomous approach for learners? Because it's like you were saying, for most people, I think that is very counterintuitive. So the reason is that learning any skill, it has to be something that you learn for yourself. If you if you think about confident speakers, so I mean, Ethan, you live in Barcelona, you speak Spanish, you speak Catalan as well. If you think about, you know, when you walk into a bar or a restaurant or a, an event and you go up to someone and and you and you just say hi to them, and you introduce yourself, the, the confidence that you have to do that, the way that you hold your body, the, your, your body language, the, the intonation in your voice, the way that you deliver, the way that you speak, and the confidence that you speak with, that doesn't come from something you learned in a textbook. That comes from something that you've done many times in real life. And, and, and so this, I think, applies across the board with, with language learning. We have to learn these things by ourselves, and we need... To, the way that you learn something and have confidence that it's right is by learning it by yourself. And so I think a lot of the time people look for the solutions in teachers. They say, okay, if I find a teacher and I pay them money, they will teach me. But what you're really doing there is you're giving the responsibility, you're transferring the responsibility to the teacher and say, teacher, you teach me. Yeah, you're the professional. I'm paying you. Now you teach me. And teachers can help. Absolutely. Even the best teachers what they will do is the best teachers know that real learning doesn't happen in the classroom. Real learning happens when you go home and you spend time with the language yourself. Maybe you're reading a book, maybe even, you know, even if you're going through a textbook or something, it's when you're studying by yourself in a quiet space with time to think, that's when you really learn. And so the teacher really is a guide and the teacher can help guide your learning. They can help suggest things that you can do help you find resources, but they, they can't do the learning for you. Uh, you know, I like, always like to say that a language cannot be taught. It can only be learned. And so I like to, I like to try to encourage people to believe that they can learn by themselves because as soon as you take the responsibility to learn by yourself, that's when you really learn the lessons, really learn the language, and then be able to do things like, um, you know, walk into a bar and use, use the language in a confident, natural way. That's a really, really important paradigm shift that uh, definitely when I was teaching, I would always try to have my students realize that from very early on, like even keeping a log of their learning, for example, so that they could start to kind of like shift their perspective from what we were doing in class, which is important, but it's really just kind of like that guidance and feedback to actually taking responsibility to learning outside of the classroom and, you know, how much time are you spending? Are you creating your own immersive experience and everything? So that's a, I think an absolutely crucial step there. So I would kind of ask 
what guidance would you give to, you know, you mentioned before someone who's 30 years old and they decide that they need to, or they want to learn English or, or French or Russian or whatever language it is. Uh, what would you say would be kind of that first step instead of going back to their English textbooks from high school, what should they do instead to become an autonomous, an autonomous learner? Yeah. Well, it, it does. It depends where you're starting from. Are you a complete beginner? Do you have some experience in the language already? Often, you know, people do remember some English from school or they learn, you know, they, they, took a French course once. So it depends. But generally for a complete beginner, um, what I would suggest is I do find that a textbook is kind of helpful for if you're a complete beginner, but I would suggest using it in a very specific way. What you should do with the textbook is just to kind of go through it, look at the dialogues in the textbook. So read the dialogues, listen to them, and then just look at the basic rules of the language. They're really simple stuff like how do you, how do you, how do you conjugate a verb? I am, you are, he is, she is. Um, is there agreement between the nouns and adjectives, for example? Basically, just kind of go through a beginner's textbook very quickly just to get an idea of the basic structure of the language. That's useful because someone has gone, has gone to the effort of actually uh, preparing all this information and putting it into, into one book. So it is useful. The big difference is... I wouldn't want you to go through and study and learn all of that stuff because then you can spend months doing it. Rather, you should just look through it quite quickly over the course of you know a week or two weeks, get the main information, and then immediately start to um, get input in the language. So you can use resources like the, the books, books that I've written in different languages, like short stories, which are for early level learners. You can find simple podcasts. You can find um, even, even YouTube videos, or things that have been created for beginners, and start to spend time listening to and reading things in the language. Because what you'll find is that the more you, the more input you get, the more you're going to learn. And so that's where we earlier we were talking about the Pareto principle. The idea here is spend 80% of your time actually reading and listening to the language. And then that 20% of time, that's where you can do things like check the grammar rules, or maybe look up a word here or there. Um, maybe you could spend some time with a teacher if you want. It doesn't really matter. But the key thing is that you're spending 80% of your time reading and listening in some way. And the secret to getting that right is to make sure that the material that you're using needs to be at your level. So if you're a complete beginner, then you've got to find uh, stories or, or, or TV shows that are for beginners at your level. And that can be difficult to find. A lot of the work that I do with my language courses um, and my books is at I try to create material for the beginner level because it's very difficult to find. And so as you get better in the language, then start to read things that are a little bit more difficult. And then, you know, you gradually increase the level because if you try to read something that's too hard, you won't understand. Uh, so it's really important to, to, to find material that's at your level um, so that, because that's when you can actually learn stuff from that. I think that's really important too, just for that. You're kind of talking about, giving yourself those feelings of success from early on, because you can read a book and you can understand a little bit, you can listen to something and you can understand a little bit. And so you're not jumping right into something, maybe like trying to watch an entire movie in the language that you're learning, that's going to probably just make you feel overwhelmed. And so you won't, you know, you, you might end up giving up just because you feel like you can't do it. But I, I really like what you're talking about using kind of like these short stories that are actually uh, written for your level or audios that are, are recorded for your level. Uh, and I think the other thing there too, was saying that 80-20 is like recognizing that 
when you're learning a language, it can't always be fun 100% of the time. You need that kind of like 20% of deliberate practice of, of study time. But let's keep a lot of it fun so that you stay motivated, right? Exactly. And the great thing about learning through stories or learning through TV shows is that you are actually spending your time doing something that's fun. And this is, this is one of the big benefits of, of learning by yourself and learning with material that you, that you like is that you can actually spend most of your time reading fun stories or watching cool TV shows. It's great. Uh, but you're right. You, I'm also a big believer in some discipline and some structure. So you will need to look up grammar rules. You will need to look up the meaning of, of words. You, you will need to work on your pronunciation. But you need to do that a lot less than people think. Because overall, if you're spending 80% of your time reading and listening, then all of these questions you have will answer themselves naturally over time, as long as you're getting enough of that uh, input in the first place. And so you're talking a lot about input. At what point during this, uh, say, again, kind of coming back to the student who's, who's starting out and they're going through this autonomous approach, at what point do you recommend to them that they start speaking? This is a big question. I, uh, I recorded a video about this recently on my, on my YouTube channel. Uh, I, and I think there's no right answer for this because there are different considerations. I think you've got the linguistic answer and then you've got the personal answer. And I don't think there is one right way. I know very successful language learners who do both, but let me explain what those two approaches are. So personally, I think, I believe that if you're learning through input, so if you're learning through reading stories or uh, watching TV shows, then there's no rush to start speaking at the beginning because you're going to be learning over a, a, period, a period of many, many months and you're always learning more and more. You're building up the knowledge in your head. If you start to speak at the beginning, you don't know anything yet. You can't say anything. You won't be able to understand what people say. So for a lot of people, that's a very stressful experience and not very fun. So for me, the linguistic answer is there's no rush to speak. You can spend many months just with input, learning through stories or whatever, build up the knowledge in your, in your brain. And then when the day comes that you are, you feel ready to speak with people, it's going to be much more fun because you already know the language. You've got a big vocabulary. You understand grammar. You're, you, you, you understand the language. So that's the, the kind of simple answer. Lots of input, learn the language, and then start to speak. I think in an ideal world, that's the best approach because you are just waiting to do things at the time when they make the most sense. Now, we don't live in a perfect world and we are all different and we all get motivated by different things. So the reality is that many people find speaking the most motivating thing of all. And I'm one of those people. I love speaking on day one of learning a new language because I just enjoy it. I enjoy communicating with people. I enjoy trying things out. I don't care if I make mistakes. I, I'm, I learn languages because I want to connect with people. That's the thing for me, that's most fun. And so for that reason, I like to speak right at the beginning, even though I generally advise people not to do it. I do that though, because I understand that that motivates me. And because I know that I find it fun and I don't care about making mistakes and things like that, and I know that it's going to motivate me to keep learning, I do it. But the thing is, I've met many, many learners who get very scared and very intimidated by speaking, by feeling like they have pressure to speak at the beginning. And so for that reason, I like to give people an option and say, it's okay, you don't have to speak. The thing about the internet, Ethan, is that there's a lot of people on, online on YouTube saying things like, yeah, you have to speak from the beginning, speak from day one, like first, first day, start speaking. A lot of people tend to put pressure on 
um, in, in that in that way. And it can be good for some people, but it can be harmful for other people. The good things about what both of us do and what I've found over the years by by helping so many people with language learning is I get to meet people from very, very different backgrounds. And it's been very interesting for me to meet many people, many students of mine who do feel a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety around speaking. And so I think it's important for, for those people to give them the option and to say, it's okay, you don't have to speak. It's perfectly fine to spend three, six, 12 months learning the language by yourself through input, through immersion, and then to start to speak later when you're ready. So those are the two uh, two perspectives, and there's no right answer. I, th- I think it's like everything else in language learning is you have to try different things and find what works best for you. But I certainly think if people haven't considered the option of speaking early on, that can be beneficial for a lot of us just because some people can be, become very perfectionist about yeah. it. And so they're like, I'm not there yet. Someday I'll speak, but I, I, I need to like learn a little bit more. So I think if you do choose that approach that you're, you're going to kind of build up your competencies before you start speaking, I think it's really important that you maybe set yourself a deadline or do something just to make sure you don't fall into that trap that that someday trap, you know? <laughs> it's a big danger as well. And you're absolutely right. Some people will will spend so much time studying and, they, and they'll say, okay, I'll just, I'll start speaking when I'm ready. Except you never feel ready and you always feel a bit a bit nervous. So for those people, yeah, I think it is good to start speaking early on. But in that case, I think you, you need to know that you want to do it. You know, if you don't, I think the most important thing is to follow your intuition. And if you feel that speaking is, doesn't feel right, or you feel uncomfortable, or it's making you nervous, then it's absolutely fine. You know, you don't need to do that, but you're absolutely right. You do have to remember that someday you are going to have to start speaking. And the, the big danger is that you wait too long and then it just becomes this huge thing in your mind that stops you from doing it. Couldn't agree more. And kind of continuing on this subject. So I think most English learners you talk to, their big goal is to become fluent in English. And people have very different ideas in their head about what this means. And I think a lot of people have the misconception, at least I consider this a misconception, that they will speak perfectly like a native, and that's what fluent means to them. So how do you define fluency? Again, it's a very personal thing, right? And it depends on on you and your aims. So I have my definition of of fluency that I use for myself and for my life. And for me, what I want to be able to do is to sit in a bar with somebody and have an enjoyable conversation that they want to be part of and don't want to leave because my Spanish or whatever is not is not good enough, right? So that's the definition. Can I comfortably chat with someone and make friends in the language and for them to mm-hmm. enjoy it? That's conversationally fluent, I think you'd, you'd say. And for me, that is about a B2 level. So it's like an upper intermediate B2 level. If I can get to that level in the language, I'm pretty happy. I find also that that's the level where if you get your, your English or whatever language to a B2 level, it generally doesn't fall. You won't forget it after that. There's a kind of dangerous area around B1, intermediate level, where if you stop learning, you really can forget and, and, and lose it. So I tend to try to get to a B2 level first because that's where I can actually, I know I won't forget the language, but it's also the level where I can really use it as part of my life. You know, I can, I can have, I can make friends, genuine friends in the language. I can travel to the country and be absolutely fine. So, you know, that it's the, it's kind of, it's the, the pub test or the bar test that I think is for me is what really matters. Now, you can, there are many reasons why you might want to go further. So in, I've, in many languages, I've gone, I've learned it to a, to a C1 level. And that is much better because there you really, you really just can speak with people so much more easily. 
but it's not necessary in order to actually live and enjoy enjoy the language. For most people, it's it's you know getting to something like a C two or a perfection level it is really not necessary. And uh, apart from anything, it takes so much longer. I, I like to think that for every language level that you go up to, it takes double the amount of time. So if you imagine to learn A1 English takes three months, well then to learn A2 English takes six months, B1 takes a year, B2 takes two years, C1 then takes four years, and then C2 can take another, I know, four to eight years. So it's like a kind of 10 to 20 year journey to learn a language to, right. to perfection. And so it does take a lot of time. And something that I think about a lot in my life is that, uh, you know, I've spent many years learning languages, but right now at this stage in my life, I'm, to be honest, I'm not learning that languages that much because I'm interested in it. I'm, I'm spending my time with other things, spend a lot of time with family, a lot of time working on my, on my business, writing books and things like that. Language learning for me mm-hmm. or getting one language to higher and higher and higher a level, it just doesn't, I don't need it. It's not going to make a difference in my life. So so yeah, I, I like to say that kind of that B two level where you can have a fun conversation in a pub. Like that's that's a good level of fluency to aim for. Yeah, I love what you said. I mean, I love the name, the pub test. I'm definitely going to start using that. But uh, I love that it's really lowering the bar for people because I think that's going to be good enough for most people if you can have Absolutely. that enjoyable conversation. Language is for connection, right? So in the end if you can get to that point where you can have a fun, enjoyable conversation with someone, for most of us, I think, you know, probably 80% of the cases, we can come back to 80-20, that's probably going to be a level where most of your objectives with that language will be met. And maybe you need to hone in on some specific things, depending maybe if you're using it at work, you might need to learn some special vocabulary or something, but still probably that level is going to suit you in most meetings and things like that even. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, people will have different uh, different objectives, right? So if you're, if you're learning English for work, then you probably do need to, to not ne- you don't necessarily need to be higher than B2, but you will need to learn some specialist vocabulary for your particular sector. You will need to have strong listening skills so that you can understand meetings and things like that. So everybody has to take their own, th- their own case in mind. But for a general learner, you know, I think to get to the, if you can pass the pub test, you're good. <laughs> That's fantastic. So kind of pivoting, uh, coming back to your near-death experience and storytelling. So you were kind of explaining this, you know, that after that experience that you're walking down the street the next day, you had Spanish words popping in your head from reading the night before and kind of this difference between your experience learning with textbooks and learning with stories uh, was that things actually stuck with you. So why should people learn for stories? My favorite topic. <laughs> the thing about stories is that stories are the most basic form of communication that we have. You know, if you think about the earliest drawings inside caves, there's a reason that people did that 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. They wanted to show that these things are happening in my life. You know, I was chasing a, an antelope to kill it and cook it. And then whilst fighting off a bear and running away from a lion, you know, these, this is my life and I want to communicate that. I want to tell other people what my life was like. And so it's in our DNA to learn with stories, to, to, to use stories to communicate. You know, when you meet up with your friend, what do you do? You tell your friend what happened to you last week when you were walking down the street. You know, stories are how we communicate. And so when you, when you read a story in another language, there's a part of it that you already understand. Most stories follow similar uh, similar patterns, you know. It's commonly said there are only seven 
plots, seven basic plots to any story. We know what it means to follow the hero, the, the hero's journey, as it's called, um, through, through, through a story. We understand the, the arc of the story, how a story changes. And so when you're reading a story, okay, the language might be new, but the story itself is something that you already understand. And so you're giving yourself something to hold on to, a bit like when you're climbing a wall, you know, you're climbing wall, you've got these things, the handholds that you can hold on to to help you up. And so that's the starting point. Story is something that is that is something we already understand and know. It's very different to a rule in a textbook, which is something completely abstract, completely, uh, completely, it has nothing to do with how we use a language. It's just an, an explanation. A story is real. A story is something we understand. But there's a lot more because when you read a story, you never see words individually. You see words in a sentence. You see words that make a sentence that uses grammar. You see dialogue. You see people talking and saying things. And so when you're learning from stories, what you're doing is you're always seeing how to use the language. You know, what words to what words go together. You know, you don't you don't just um you don't just uh put something, you put up with something, or you put something on something. You learn which words kind of go together in a natural way. Um, which means that again, it's very different from a traditional way of learning where you learn a grammar rule or an individual word, but you don't know how to use it. If you think about the idea of spending 80% of your time with stories, you're going to know, you're going to be very familiar with how the language works by the end of it. You might not understand everything. You might not understand exactly how everything works, but you'll start to know it in here, in your head. And this is how native speakers learn their language. They don't understand the grammar, but they just know that it's true. There was one other mm-hmm. very interesting aspect of stories, which is that when you read a story or when you're watching TV, your brain will feel the same emotions that the character in the story is feeling or the character on the TV show is, mm, is feeling. True. So if the person you're watching on TV is sad, your brain will feel sad as well. That's why we can cry in a, in a sad movie. It's because we, mm-hmm. when you're watching or reading a story, you can feel those emotions yourself. And so this means that the, learning a language through a story is a very, very um, holistic experience. It uses our whole brain. And when you use your whole brain, you form connections. And that's how memories are formed as well. So stories give you the whole language altogether in one place. And that's why they're so powerful. That's really fascinating. And I think from my, my own experience, even I've had very similar things happen to me that I read something and then like naturally just the next day I'm having a conversation, I say something, I'm like, how, how did I know how to say that? Like, how did I know how to do that sort of grammatical construction? And I I realized that it just was something that kind of naturally stuck with me from reading. So that's, that's very true. And kind of hearing a little bit, the science behind that and and even like the, the history behind it, it makes a lot of sense. Hey there, Real Lifer. Just a quick break from this episode to share a big announcement with you about the recent launch of the brand new Real Life English app, where Ollie, Andrea, and I, your Real Life Fluency Coaches, will guide you beyond the classroom to live, learn, and literally speak English in the real world, which is to understand natives, speak with anyone, and connect to the world. So how do we accomplish that with our app? 
To start with, you can listen to the Real Life English podcast, even this very episode, with digital transcripts so that you can follow along and develop your listening fluency, plus check dozens of definitions of all the most difficult vocab, idioms, phrasal verbs, slang, and much more that you won't find anywhere else or in any other podcast. And how would you like to develop real-life speaking confidence at the touch of a button by speaking with other learners while making friends across cultures? Sounds like a dream, right? Well, now with the real-life app, it will be a dream come true. Download the app to listen to our podcast with transcripts and definitions whenever and wherever you want and speak with people from all around the world. What are you waiting for? Join our global community today by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or going to www.reallifeglobal.com slash app or search for the Real Life English app in the Google Play or Apple App Store today and let us guide you beyond the classroom to live and learn and speak English in the real world. Aw, yeah. One of the things I would ask you is, how does this just differ from, you know, simple reading input or like people focusing on developing their reading skills? Like, for example, is it just enough to say, pick up the Harry Potter series and just start reading that? Or what would you say the difference is? Yeah, well, the thing about reading is that it, we're aiming to get to a very specific place in our languages, which is to read for pleasure. In, in teaching terms, it's called extensive reading. But if you think, like, what's the point of reading ultimately? Well, ultimately, the point of reading is to do exactly what we do in our, in our native language. So why do you read books in your native language? Well, you read books to learn, to enjoy the story, to find out information. And so the, the, the ultimate we can achieve, the best thing that we can achieve in a foreign language that we're learning is to read in exactly the same way as we do in our native languages. So read novels because you love the story. Um, take courses or read books, um, how-to books. Uh, you know, if you want to learn how to um, build a house, learn how to do it in Spanish or or in English. Use the language to actually learn or read the things that you want to read anyway. Because when you can do that, then you will just read for the rest of your life and you will eventually become a native-like in the language. So to answer your question, if Harry Potter is what you love and what you want to read, then absolutely. What I would say, though, is don't read Harry Potter just because someone told you you should read it because yeah. <laughs> you won't enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy it, you won't learn. So the, the, the secret is to read. Well, there's two things, right? And I, we, we can talk about this in two, in two ways. First of all, you've got, and these are teaching terms here, but I'll explain them. First of all, you've got comprehensible input and then you've got compelling input. And you need these two things together. Comprehensible input is something at your level. Okay, so this is what we spoke about earlier about how important it is to read something that's at a level that you can understand. Not too easy, not too hard. Compelling input then is something that you find so interesting that you can't put it down and you have to keep reading. So to use the Harry Potter test, yes, you can read Harry Potter if you understand somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of it. So it's not too hard, then great. And if you also love Harry Potter and you really want to read it in a foreign language, then fantastic. If you meet those two tests, then go for it. For me, it wouldn't work because mm -hmm. I'm not really interested in reading Harry Potter. Uh, but that makes sense. But, but for lots of people, it would be. Um, but yeah, it's very important to remember those two things at the right level and very interesting for you. I think that's, again, it's like anything, you know, you have to find kind of what works for you. So what I might ask you next is just like, 
you, you've talked a lot just about why people should learn with stories. So I'd be curious if you could just give kind of what's uh, an overview of your method of, of learning with stories yeah. um, and any practical tips that you might have for people to apply that who are interested in trying this out. Sure. Yeah. So I have a method that's called the story learning method. And so it's literally learning languages through stories. It works a bit differently at different levels. So for example, the, the, the books of short stories that I have, I have these now in over 20 languages. And these are, these are basically that's the incredible. kind of graded <laughs> readers that you're familiar with. Okay. So these are um, books that are written at either the um, beginner level or an intermediate level. And these are kind of, I mean, they're books of stories. You, you, everybody knows what that is, and you should read them. Um, and I have a, I have a specific suggested process for reading those books. But at the end of the day, they're just they're just books. So that's material to help you practice. But I also have, I mean, the main way that I use my story learning method is to teach um, new languages. So I have courses for people who are learning languages like Spanish or French or Japanese or Chinese or whatever. And we have a very uh, specific process for that because one of the things I wanted to do after I had that near-death experience in um, Argentina was I wanted to find a way that people could learn through stories even if they're a complete beginner because it's kind of obvious how to use stories if you already speak the language but it's not so obvious well how can I do this as a complete beginner and so the courses that I Mm -hmm. created with the story learning method actually do that so it works like this we begin with a very simple story in the language let's use Spanish as an example so I have a, a, a very simple story in Spanish and that is over somewhere between 10 to 20 chapters. So imagine a really simple story that's written for complete beginners over uh, 20 chapters. As you're learning on, on this course, what you'll do is you will learn, you'll be reading the story. So every module of the course begins with a chapter of the story. You'll read that chapter and then you'll listen to the audio of that chapter and you'll spend lots of time reading and listening. Now at the beginning, because you're a beginner, you're not going to understand anything, which is strange, right? You're reading a story, but you don't understand anything. So how does it work? Well, what happens after that is then we have these video lessons that come in and explain the stuff that you've been reading. So I'll come in and point out um, words that you read in the story. So, for example, um, there's there's a bit where they might talk about a job title uh, or what someone does. So we might say this person um, is cientista, for example. And so I, then in, this, in the video lessons, I'll come in and, and, and say, okay, you see that word there, cientista? Does it look like any word that you might remember or recognize from English? And then you kind of uncover the fact, okay, oh, actually, that's, that, that's the word scientist. So this person is a scientist. So through a very kind of natural process, uh, I hope you can understand what you're reading. And so the course continues like this. You spend time reading and listening to a story, and then you have lessons from me where I help you understand what you're reading. And what that means is by the end of the course then you have read an entire story in the language because my main aim is that I want you to actually start the habit of reading and listening right from the beginning. So even though it's a bit hard and it'll be very different from any other course that you might have taken in the past, it gets you doing the right things from the beginning. So spending lots of time reading and and listening. And so that, that that's the story learning method at the heart. And then I, I do things like write write books and, and, other, and other things to help you practice the language at different levels as you get more advanced. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. So most people who are 
listening to this, watching this, they probably have more around intermediate, maybe even advanced level yeah. of English. Uh, so you you have also, it's, it's not just for complete beginners, you have it also for helping people break through those different levels, right? Yeah, that's right. So I have a, a mix of, um, of books at beginner and intermediate levels. We're actually working on um, advanced level books right now. Um, I'm talking with my publishers and trying to persuade them to make an advanced, advanced levels. Um, but I also create courses for things like um, learning grammar, improving your grammar, improving your listening skills. Um, and it's all based on story. So all of my, all of the different books and courses, they're all based on story. Um, it's just that the different courses focus on different elements. So for example, the listening courses will be all spoken English where you can, uh, you know, follow a, a story along just like friends really. Um, but it's very focused on, on faster English to improve your listening skills. And then similarly with grammar, we'll create stories which have very specific grammar points in them that we can use to actually help you practice and focus on those on, on the grammar. So there's lots of different elements of language learning that you'll be more familiar with, you know, listening, grammar and stuff, but all with stories, with a story as the engine of the, of the learning. That's amazing. I mean, that sounds like a much more fun way to, you know, learn about grammar, for example, as if you're actually just reading a story and it just happens to be helping you to polish up these different points of the grammar. So we'll definitely link to both the courses and the books for probably for English, but then I'm sure people can find the other languages as well. If anyone here is also learning other languages or is interested in starting a new language. Uh, but one of the things I was curious about just to kind of wrap up talking about, you know, stories for learning languages, for learning English, I was curious uh, if any of these stories actually come from your own travels or from your own life. You mean the stories in the, in, in the books and the courses? Right. Honestly, generally not because when partly I, my life is really boring. Um, <laughs> but, but also because see, when I write these stories, I'm always trying to find the right balance. It has to be, they have to be like interesting and fun stories, but I'm always trying to teach something as well. Right. So I'm always trying to, to demonstrate like, you know, maybe a particular grammar point or set of vocabulary or something like that. Uh, and and also what I've what happens is that people like different stories, right? So some people, when I was first writing my my books, one of the things I did was I I did a lot of surveys with my audience, asking, hey, what kind of stories do you like to read? And it turns out that people really like things that I'm not interested in. So people love reading sci-fi books, for example, <laughs> and um, people love Makes people sense. love reading um, historical fiction. So like history stories, uh, sci-fi, people like um, crime stories, other people like romance. And so what I had to do was kind of write stories which are from lots of different genres so that everybody's got something that they like. And so it was kind of, that's the way around I did it. I first decided, okay, here are the genres that we want to write stories about. Now let's figure out the story rather than, you know, thinking about stories in, in, in my own life. So it, just, it, didn't, it didn't really fit the process, but it's an interesting idea. Maybe I could write a book of, you know, Ollie's stories. Oh God, that sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just talking about at least the, the near death experiences and the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a handful of those, that could be a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks for the idea. Of course. So kind of just shifting gears a little bit, uh, you had listed before quite a long list, at least for, for most of us mortals of the languages that you have learned and that you speak. So I know that you just like me, you're an, you're an entrepreneur, you have your own business. You've been explaining that you're, you're a writer. You have to come up with all these different stories as well as part of that. So suffice to say, you have a very busy schedule. So one of the things I'm very curious about is, are you able to actually maintain all of these languages that you've learned? Yeah. So it's a really good question. So I'm actually very open about the fact that I don't really maintain my languages so much. I mean, some of them I do, some of them I don't. Now this is 
this is quite different from a lot of YouTube language people who have these very busy schedules of maintaining their languages, you know, one, lang- one language here, one language there. I don't do that. Um, for me, language learning is all about improving my life. So I will learn a, a new language when it, when it would really bring something to my life. So for example, when I went to live in Japan, I learned Japanese. When um, I met Brazilian people here in London, I learned Portuguese. Uh, when I moved to Egypt, I learned some Arabic. But then when I left Egypt, I didn't have any Arabic friends. I was never surrounded by the language. And I stopped learning Arabic and I stopped speaking Arabic and I've since forgotten it. Whereas there are languages like Portuguese and Spanish and Japanese that I speak a lot even to this day. So I, I never try to force it. I, I don't really enjoy the learning or the study part so much. You know, I enjoy the speaking and mm-hmm. the using uh, of the languages. So I'm very happy to let languages get rusty. I don't worry about it. Like I, I never, my French is quite good, but I never speak it, but that's okay because the, when I do need it, if I'm going on holiday to France, I know I can get it back quite quickly. I, I really don't worry too much about, about maintaining languages that I don't need a lot. The languages that I maintain are the ones that I use on a, on a daily basis. Not, not, not on a daily basis, on a, on a regular basis. So I often use Spanish, I often use Portuguese, I often use Cantonese, I often use um, Japanese or less so these days and so yeah i i have i tell you, I have about four languages that I, that I use quite regularly in my life um and the others you know whatever will be will be that's very pragmatic i mean i'm pretty much the same that i've learned many different languages but the ones i keep up are the ones i can actually use so yeah. it's again coming coming back to it's more about the connection right for me it is yeah it does make it difficult sometimes like doing doing stuff on uh online because People, people always like to kind of categorize you into very simple bits of information. So here's Ollie Richards who speaks eight languages. Sorry, Ollie, speak, say something in Arabic. It's like, uh, well, actually, you know, I don't really speak Arabic anymore. He, there's no room for nuance in the internet in, in general. You know, so sometimes it kind of makes it, makes it a bit tricky. Um, but yeah, I don't care really. I, I'm just, for me, like life is too short to, to do things that don't make sense for you at that, at that point in time. Yeah, I love that. Life is too short. <laughs> so... Kind of one of the questions that I had was that I've heard you talk a lot about the benefits of going to a country where they speak the language that you're learning, you know, where you can actually like speak it every day. But especially I think with the pandemic in the last year, so if anyone's like learning a new language, but also I think I just know a lot of English learners who aren't so able to travel. So how do you recommend that learners maintain the motivation to learn when they aren't fully surrounded by the language and they can't necessarily speak it every single day. We always have to work with what we've, what we've got, the cards that we are dealt. Um, we, it, that's one of the, one of the, one of the things, I mean, just as a, as a life, <laughs> a life lesson that I'm still learning, you know, we have to work with what we've got. I mean, for me, this comes back to, um, what is the best thing to do when you are by yourself, when you have lots of time by yourself? And the answer is input. It's as simple as that. I mean, this is one of the reasons that learning through stories is so powerful is because it's something you can always do at any point. So you might not be able to go out to language exchanges and travel the world right now, but you can sit and read a book every day if you want to. So I think it's about connecting with the things that you enjoy and then using that opportunity to do, to do that. So if you, if you, if you love friends, watch friends. If you like reading, get a bunch of books and spend that time reading. It's okay. The world will open up again and, um, and, and you'll get the chance to, to use the language again. But I think if you can try to remember the fact that, you know, if, you are, if, you're, if you're sort of sitting and you're spending time with a book and you're absorbing what's in the book, this will help you later on 
um, to be able to do the things you really want to do, like like the speaking and the communication. It's not just you're not wasting your time. You're not doing anything wrong. You're using this opportunity to to mm-hmm. to learn. So in, so think carefully about the things that you enjoy and spend time doing that in the language. I think that's a great tip. Is if you can just make it something that you love doing that you can do every day for the rest of your life. Then I mean that's really what lifelong fluency is all about. Yeah, well, but, that, but that's, a, that's a great point there because really it's a bit like exercise or eating healthily or something. It's not something that we do because we have to, although most people still think about it that way. It needs to be something that becomes a lifestyle choice, you know? So if you want to eat healthily, it's not something you just force yourself to do at lunchtime. You know, you've got to try to find ways to make this enjoyable so that it can become part of your lifestyle. And, you know, this is, again, why I think reading is, and stories are so powerful because you can't be speaking to people all the time you know you can't you can't not even every day we you don't you can't always be surrounded by people to speak to but reading is something that can always be part of your life wherever you are whatever the situation and so it's the perfect way really to to make language as part of your lifestyle yeah i think also just reflecting a little bit on your day what does your day look like what does your routine look like and where can you fit those things in so if you have a 30 minute drive to work maybe instead of just listening to the radio in your language like pick up a podcast that you really enjoy that you know it's at a good level for you and maybe you can even be learning something right absolutely or or another way another thing that i often suggest people to do like so for example all of my books come with audios with, or with, with uh with audio books I and mean, they're not included but they're also but they're available um separately one of the best things you can do is spend time reading a book at home and then when you're driving to work, play the audiobook of what you've been reading. So then you're getting revision and you're getting like a second opportunity to to consume that story, but this time through audio, because repetition is extremely important. Part of the method that I recommend people use to read uh, my books is not to read chapters just once, but to go back and read them multiple times. Because with each pass, you notice new things. You, you will notice new <laughs> words. You'll pick up some some grammar. And so you know, through a combination of reading a story and then listening to the audio, you can get lots and lots of repetitions of that story and you're going to learn a lot more. Yeah, I think that's another great thing you can do with that too on the the same note. Uh, It's great having the different mediums and stuff, but if you read also while you're listening, because just reading, we have a lot of learners have the problem that uh, comes again from school that so much of your time is spent reading and stuff that you never really focus on actually how to make those sounds and stuff. So if you have both of those and you can listen and actually see how does a native pronounce this word and really work on that, uh, creating that clarity. So then when you get those opportunities to speak, people can easily understand you and you're not just interpreting it in your head through like how you would pronounce that in your native language, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So we, we were talking earlier on my podcast about how, you know, you, when you, if you, um, you wanted to watch Friends, for example, you could find the transcript to that easily, which means you can listen uh, and watch, but then you can also read at the same time if you wanted. You could, be, you could be watching Friends while reading the transcript at the same time. And that's really beneficial because then you can see what you hear and hear what you see, which helps you to fill in gaps, right? So if there are wor- maybe a word you didn't hear that Joey says or something, you can you can find it in the transcript. And you're, okay, now I know what that word is. Exactly. The same thing can be done with stories. So if you are reading stories, you get to see all, all the words on the page, which makes it easy. But then when you play the audio, there's going to be some words that now you can't hear properly because it's more difficult to listen than it is to read. And so by combining the listening and reading, you just, you fill in the gaps and you can learn so much more. It's really putting together the different pieces of the puzzle. So that's on our app. Actually, one of the things people can, if you're listening to this, you can go over in our app and you can listen to this podcast with the transcript and learn all the vocabulary and everything. So that can be useful for you as well. Pivoting again, I wanted to, something I was really curious about, you've traveled all over the world and I mean, you're speaking 
fluently so many different languages and everything, or even if you don't, if you're rusty in some of them, having that experience, I was curious, do you consider yourself a global citizen? I think I used to. Um, I used to travel a lot. You know, I've lived in um, mm-hmm. Brazil, in Argentina, uh, in, in France, in Qatar, in Egypt, in Japan. I, uh, I certainly did spend pretty much all of my 20s and early 30s traveling and living in different places, learning different languages. I very much consider myself a global citizen. Life has changed a lot for me in the last five or six years, um, and I've been based in the UK. And it, it's kind of weird because I've kind of I grew up here and then I went traveling around the world. And now I've come back and my life is now quite kind of English and normal. So I don't feel like a global citizen now so much, mostly because I'm just based here. Although maybe that's like, a, the, maybe that's just the effect of, of the pandemic making me feel more, uh, more, more, more rooted at home. But I always travel a lot. You know, the year before the, year before the pandemic, I spent uh, two weeks in Thailand um, making a Thai course. And, and then the following month, I spent three weeks in Japan making my Japanese un- Uncovered course, which is a story-based course to learn Japanese. And then I was in Italy after that to film something. So I've always lived abroad a lot. I've always traveled a lot using using languages. So I, th- I think, yeah, I do. I do. I d- it just doesn't feel like it at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean there. I think when you're when you're sitting for a long time, kind of just in the same place, it can certainly, you don't have that same sense as when you're traveling and you're immersed, you know, every few weeks or every few months or every year in, in a completely new culture. So I've, I've had very similar experiences, but I do try to reconnect to that. And I think having a business where I'm working with people from all over the world and stuff, that definitely helps me to tap into that on a regular basis. Yeah. That's one of the cool things about, I mean, recently I've done a lot of interviews on YouTube um, in Spanish and in Portuguese. And, and that's been quite cool to, uh, you know, to be speaking with somebody in Brazil and speaking Portuguese for an hour and then doing, you know, then talking with someone in uh, Mexico or whatever. That, that's, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. I don't know. The world's a funny place at the moment. So I find it very difficult to, I don't know what box I'm in anymore. I'm confused. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's like, you're at such a, you're, it's just, you're at such a high level there that, you know, you can't even see the differences anymore. So it's not even something you're aware of like the fish in the water you know you can't see the water around you well yeah i mean i don't know about the high level bit but but certainly i do feel that i've kind of <laughs> i've done a lot of things i've lived in a lot of places um and it there is there is, there is certainly an, an effect where i th- you know I, I think one of the reasons that i'm kind of happy going back to the maintaining languages thing one of the reasons that i'm quite zen about not keeping up languages is because i've done so much of it that i feel quite happy just trusting in myself and believing in myself. Whereas I, I know, I know it's different for people who are learning their first language or their second language where like these, these are new languages. They're very meaningful. You know, when you're learning your first foreign language, they mean a lot to you. And the idea of forgetting them is, is crazy. Um, so yeah, there is, there is a, an element of being a fish in water there and not being able, not being able to see the wood for the trees. Definitely. Do you have any ways right now being based in London again, I imagine maybe you, you probably miss that aspect of being surrounded by a different culture, but do you kind of bring your own cultural immersion experience home at all? You know, I honestly, recently I haven't been, I, I know this is a very disappointing answer, um, <laughs> but, it's, but it's just the truth. Like I, I haven't been, I think it's in the last year I've been working a lot. I mean, one of the things about the pandemic is that I've got a lot busier with work uh, in a good, in a good way. Um, so I've been working a lot and, you know, during the day I'll do things like, in, like in interviews and conversations like this, sometimes in different languages. And then I'm always in front of the screen. So it kind of means like when I get, when I clock off and I just, and I stop work in the evening, 
I kind of want to just have peace and quiet. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't really feel like sort of sitting down and watching, watching films or, or, or listening to stuff. I just kind of like, like to disconnect a little bit. Um, but, but again, that's quite temporary because, you know, previously, um, before the pandemic, I often go out to meet friends and I get do language exchanges, you know, speak Japanese for a day or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, but I, I generally just follow what I feel and I just do things when I feel like it. Yeah. I, I feel like, too, for myself with the different languages and stuff that I can, even if I go a long time without connecting so much to it, I can tap back into it. If I just, you know, start listening to, if I'm listening to a song in French or if, you know, I see some short video in German or something like that, and I'm almost able to reconnect back to my past where, you know, I was learning that language more and stuff and, and the things that I like about that culture. So in a sense, at least I'd say in my experience, it can be a bit like riding a bike. Yeah. Languages do not get forgotten. They're always there. Even if you're very rusty and you, you maybe you spend even years away, they're always there somewhere and, and you can always get languages back. So, you know, for, for that reason, I think like with so many things in life, it's just like, I always like, I always think that things are never as good and never as bad as you think. So like, don't worry so much. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. So as we're just kind of coming towards the end of the interview, I have a rapid fire question and then we're going to play a game. So something I was a little bit curious about just all of this history that you have learning languages, traveling, that deep interest that you've had for connection and, and discovery. Does that come from, would you say, from your parents at all? Were there any unique lessons that you learned from your parents? Yeah, no, I, I had a very, very English monolingual um upbringing with no contact with languages at all we did go on holiday a family holiday to to france a couple of times maybe italy once but no i I don't know why i got interested in languages i really don't know but i'm glad i did and do you think there's anything that your parents did differently than your friend's parents that kind of affects who you are today the way you view the world i think the music had a lot to do with it so my mum made Mm -hmm. me take piano lessons from an early age and you know, I was good at it and I enjoyed it. I think growing up listening to and playing classical music had an interesting effect, which is that I wasn't so interested in pop culture at all. All of my friends would be really interested in pop culture. I was more sensitized to classical music and things like that. So I think that probably gave me, it made me more open to the different things that the world has, you know, different languages, different countries, different people, the way that people can be different. I was quite happy being different, I think. That is really interesting as well because it's it's kind of coming back to the whole thing about music i mean language in a sense is very musical and stuff and i guess i'd be curious too if you think just that that upbringing and the fact that you've studied music and, and that's such a huge part of your life if that's given you any advantage when it comes to learning languages and picking up on those musical aspects of each language it's a very common question honestly i don't think it does really yeah i think pe- people always want there to be a connection there but i don't i don't think it does <laughs> when i think about my my friends who are very successful language learners some of them are musicians many of them are not i don't see the correlation there i know musicians with terrible accents when they speak a foreign language and non-musicians with amazing perfect accents when they speak a foreign language in my case i think that there is one thing maybe two things which i think maybe did help the first thing is with accents and pronunciation my my pronunciation and my accents in different languages is one of my stronger areas there's lots of things i'm not good at but i'm generally quite good at pronunciation and so when i was learning languages like cantonese and thai which have tones 
I found that I could hear and reproduce those tones quite easily. The tones were not such a problem for me. And I think that maybe comes from the music, the fact that I have a good musical ear. But the second thing is that, you see, when, when, you, when, you're, when you're a musician, especially when you do classical music, you really have to learn how to practice. You get given a new piece of music. You have to practice it over and over and over again. And you have to develop the patience and the temperament to take something difficult that you can't do and then practice it until you can do it. And languages are a little bit like that as well. It's very difficult at the beginning, but then with lots of practice, you get better at it. So I do think that my experience with practicing classical music in particular probably meant that when I, when I came to learn languages, I, I had the right attitude to do something difficult. That's really interesting. I used to tell my students to think about something that they do really well, that they've learned to a point of mastery or, or to a very high level, and just think about, you know, what are the different things that you do in doing that, that, you know, have made you successful. And a lot of times you can find parallels. So it's, it's interesting that you say, you know, with music, kind of that discipline to sit down and study, to embrace the repetition, that those are the things that can carry over from music. So not, not something that's more obvious, like just the the picking up the sound and stuff. That's how I think about it. I mean, it's like I say, I know too many musicians who aren't good at languages for that to be like a dead cert, you know? But <laughs> Yeah, well, that's fantastic. So that said, we're going to, before we finish up, jump into a game. This is going to be putting you to the test. So I'm not sure how good you are at trivia. Oh man, I'm awful at trivia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll do my best. It'll be fun anyway. We're, we're, just, we're just taking it very lightly. So uh, no pressure. All right, so I have five different questions that have to do with, with language, a bit with travel and stuff. We'll see how well you know about them. So the first one, what are the top five most spoken languages in the world? You can say them in any order, but just the ones you think are top five. English, Spanish, Mandarin, Arabic, and Hindi. You got four out of five. So it's Mandarin, then Spanish, English, Hindi, and then Bengali. Okay. But I would bet... I only have the the top five written down. But Spanish can't be far behind. No, Spanish is on there. Arabic. Arabic isn't on there. Arabic's not on there. Okay, interesting. But I interesting. bet it would be number six or seven. Yeah. All right. But that's that's a great start. So from which three languages does English borrow most its word from? So specific languages. Yeah. Um, German, French, and I mean, is Latin considered a language for this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I say German, French, and Latin. Maybe. Again, very close. So you, the first one is actually Latin. I found that very surprising. And then French and then Greek. Uh, so okay. I was also kind of shocked that there's more Greek than, than German. Than German. That's very interesting. Yeah. English is considered a Germanic language, right? So I guess in English, we have the expression, even it's all Greek to me, but that, <laughs> since we have so many yeah. Greek words, I suppose it should be a different language. All right few more. So what are the top five countries with the most official languages? Oh, I'm going to get nothing here. Okay. Well, I would go for, I go for, um, oh man, this is pure guesswork. India. Mm -hmm. um, it's number three. South Africa. Yep. That's number one. I'm stumped. Are they, are, are they all Africa? Are the rest of them all African countries? No, no, there, I can give you a hint. So there's one other African country and then two of them are actually European countries. Okay. Luxembourg. Yeah, it's not, not on there, but it's, that's um, close. No, I'm going to have to pass. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you did really well, though. I mean, South Africa and I don't think I would have gotten South Africa, India. So South Africa, number two is Zimbabwe. So it's same, uh, very, very similar ge geographical location. And then India. I know, Papua New Guinea. No, that's not on there either. 
It's a good guess, though. I'm not sure how many languages they have. It's, the, the thing is, because I, I think Papua New Guinea is the, is, the, <laughs> is the country with the most languages spoken, but it's the official languages, which is the interesting one, because that kind of depends on what, what the That's government it, yeah. lists as the official languages. So, so what have we got then? What, what are the five? That's a caveat. The, the last two are, the European ones are Switzerland and Spain. So in Spain, there's, I suppose there's, there's four official languages. There's obviously Spanish, Catalan, which is spoken here, Basque, and Gallego, yeah. Galician. Well, I would have thought there'd be more mm. there. Wow. Yeah. There might be, I'm not sure how many are considered official because there's also like Aranés, which is like a mix between Catalan and, but it's like a smoke in a very small part. I'm not sure if that's considered official. Have to actually, now I'm curious to look that up. Yeah. Check your, check your, check your All facts. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And this one, not so friendly to a Brit, but let's give it a go. So what are the other top three languages both spoken in the USA besides English? Spanish? Mm-hmm. German? Nope. <laughs> Italian? Nope. Yeah, it's going to be some Eastern European ones, maybe. It's a good guess based on immigration, but yeah, I think I the, 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 there's one of these. I don't think there's any way you would get it. It, see, it wouldn't surprise me if it was like, the, the, it could be like Somali or something like that. Or, <laughs> I don't know. No idea. It's, it's something, yeah, something similar. So uh, Spanish, the, the huge majority is 41 million speakers in the USA. Uh, Chinese, all varieties, is 3.5 million. And then here, like the dark horse is Tagalog from okay. the Philippines, which mm-hmm. is 1.7 million. Wow. Didn't realize there's so many, I mean, obviously the Philippines, it has like a lot of uh, very close relations with the USA, but I would find that very surprising. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I would have said French maybe. Because of the proximity to Canada, you know. I guess it's just the immigration and like the just pure numbers of, uh, of Chinese and Filipino Im- immigrants that come yeah. to the country. Makes sense. It does, yeah. So finally, last but not least, what are the three countries that don't have a legal official language? The Vatican. Vatican, that's a good guess. It's not on the list. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've got absolutely no idea. <laughs> I just guessed the Vatican because I thought, well, what, what countries are different from the rest? And <laughs> uh, All right. You're, you're giving up? I'm giving up. Pass. Okay. Uh, the United States, I didn't know this. I guess the United have an States language. doesn't have an official language. Yeah. I guess it's for the sake of inclusiveness, right? And on a similar note, Australia doesn't have an official language, a legal official language. And then the last one I find very surprising as well, Mexico. Well, who would have guessed that? Yeah. How weird. That one was definitely, that, that, I'm, I'm not surprised you were stumped there. So <laughs> I would not have known a single one. All right. So thanks so much for participating in everything. And in that painful project, that painful trivia. It was all, it was all going so well until, uh, until we got to the trivia. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Uh, Ollie, thanks so much for all of your time today and for all of the insight into English and beyond. I hope some listeners might be motivated even to go outside the bounds of learning English and you know pick up a, pick up a third language if there's one you've always wanted to learn. So that can definitely cross-pollinate with learning English. So uh, before we finish, I just wanted to uh, ask if you have any asks for the audience. Oh, no, no asks other than give give story learning a try. If you, if you haven't spent much time um, reading, you know, I, for me personally, reading is the most powerful way to improve your language skills. So if you haven't spent much time reading, try it. You'll be amazed um, what happens. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's something I do every night before bed. Find it's better than, you know, any sort of sleep medicine is just reading in another language. So uh, 
Thanks so much, Ollie. And, and where can people find you if they want to, you know, join one of your courses so they can get an expert to kind of guide them on learning through stories? Uh, where can they find the the books you mentioned and the sure, courses yeah. and other things about you if they want to follow you? Thanks. So if you like YouTube, go and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search uh, Ollie Richards on YouTube. Um, if you like podcasts, then search for the I Will Teach You a Language podcast. We've got over 400 episodes there. If you want to find out about um, the various courses and books that I have, then you can go to my website, which is IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com. IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com. And there we have courses for learning lots of different languages through stories, as well as links to my books, which you can find um, there on the website, also in your local bookstore or on Amazon. Just type um, Ollie Richards on Amazon and you'll find uh, 30 plus books or so there so you can find you can find something to try out learning through stories in, in not every language but lots and that's that's incredible that you've got so many that are officially published so congratulations on and that there's more on there's more on the way we've just uh we're just going through the process of approving five more languages at the moment um wow. i don't want to say what they are uh just now in case they don't get approved but what i will say is that we're trying to we're trying to spread our geographical wings a little bit and not quite, not be quite so uh, Eurocentric. That's beautiful. So also you, you have books that are for English learners and courses for English learners since that's our main audience. Uh, if, so don't be dissuaded. Many books are short stories and also converse, uh, conversational dialogues and things for for English learners as well. So yeah, the, the best thing to do probably, I mean, Ethan, maybe you can put a link uh, here somewhere yeah. to the, I have a, a page on my website, which is, uh, which lists all the books that we, we have, but the simplest way is probably to go to Amazon and just search for Ollie Richards and you'll find all of the stuff there. Mm -hmm. So you'll find all of the links that we've discussed in this episode to Ollie's website and different resources that we've mentioned in the show notes, which will be linked in the description of this episode. And Ollie also mentioned the podcast, which I was a recent guest on. So you can go listen to him, you know, putting me on the hot seat over there if you are interested. And see you in the next episode of the Beyond Borders talk show. Thanks again, Ollie. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can find all the mentioned links and resources from this show on the show notes at reallifeglobal.com. It is also linked in the description of this episode. If English fluency is important to you, then remember to check out our Real Life app, where you can practice listening to native speech and speak with other learners from around the world while also discovering new cultures. You will find that linked in the description or just search for Real Life English in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. For now, remember that no matter what divides us, that which unites us is far greater. See you on the next show.